Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the reading of the Courier Journal for Friday, June 30th, 2023 which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Craig Davis. First, let's read the local weather forecast from the WHAS 11 Storm Alert Team. It will be humid today, a strong thunderstorm during the afternoon. Storms can bring flooding and damaging winds. A strong thunderstorm in the evening. Storms can bring flooding and damaging winds tonight. Heavy thunderstorms tomorrow afternoon. Thunderstorms can bring flooding downpours, hail, and damaging wind gusts. Sunday, a thunderstorm. Thunderstorms can be strong, perhaps severe. Monday, clouds and sun. Today's high will be about 91, with clouds and sun, and warmer, and tonight a low of 73, with a strong thunderstorm possible, and again humid. Saturday, a high of 89, cloudy and humid, and a low of 73. Sunday, high 88, humid with a thunderstorm, and a low of 71. Monday, high 88, humid with clouds and sun, and a low of 70. Tuesday, high 89, partly sunny and nice, and a low of 72. Wednesday, high 92, with clouds and sun, and a low of 74. From the Almanac for Louisville on Wednesday, temperature, high 85, low 65, normal high 88, low 70. Record high was 103 in 2012, record low 53 in 1961. Precipitation, Wednesday, zero. Month to date, 4.78 inches. Normal month to date, 3.98 inches. Year to date, 26.68 inches. Normal year to date, 25.36 inches. Pollen count. High for grass and low for trees. Sun and moon. Friday, sunrise, 6.23 a.m., set, 9.10 p.m. Moonrise, 6.37 p.m., set, 3.30 a.m. Saturday, sunrise, 6.23 a.m., set, 9.10 p.m. Moonrise, 7.50 p.m., Set for 11 a.m. From the front page, the first article is entitled Gender-Affirming Care Ban Halted. It's a Senate Bill 150 challenge. Judge temporarily ceases Kentucky stoppage on puberty blockers and hormone therapy. 
article by Olivia Krauth of Louisville Courier-Journal and USA Today Network. A federal judge temporarily blocked part of Kentucky's ban on gender-affirming health care for trans youth just hours before the full ban was set to go into effect. U.S. District Judge David Hale sided with the ACLU of Kentucky on Wednesday in issuing the temporary injunction, keeping puberty blockers and hormone therapy legal and accessible to those under 18 in Kentucky while a larger lawsuit plays out. After careful consideration, the court finds that plaintiffs have shown a strong likelihood of success on the merits of their constitutional challenges to Senate Bill 150 and otherwise meet the requirements for preliminary injunctive relief, Hale said. The ACLU of Kentucky, along with the National Center for Lesbian Rights and law firm Morgan, Lewis, and Bacchus, filed suit in early May on behalf of transgender children and their parents, arguing Senate Bill 150's bans on gender-affirming health care are unconstitutional. SB 150, they contend, singles out trans kids by blocking access to medical care that cisgender kids can receive. They also say it unjustly limits a parent's rights to make medical decisions for their children. The ACLU's lawsuit focuses solely on puberty blockers and hormone therapy. SB 150's ban on gender-affirming surgeries on minors, which already weren't happening in Kentucky, is not being challenged and went into effect as scheduled Thursday. In his ruling, Hale wrote that the court finds that the treatments barred by SB 150 are medically appropriate and necessary for some transgender children under the evidence-based standard of care accepted by all major medical organizations in the United States. These drugs have a long history of safe use in minors for various conditions, he wrote. It is undisputed that puberty blockers and hormones are not given to prepubertal children with gender dysphoria. Much of SB 150 went into effect immediately after lawmakers overrode Governor Andy Beshear's veto of the measure in late March. The section prohibiting gender-affirming care was set to go into effect Thursday. Well, a federal judge ruled what I believe that parents have the legal right to make important and sometimes difficult medical decisions for their kids, that a parent should always be trusted to make medical decisions for their children, not government, Bashir told reporters Thursday. This is one where I believe in the rights of parents, being a parent, to do what's right for their kids. Opponents to SB 150 and other anti-LGBTQ plus measures celebrated Wednesday's injunction. A bill that would have wreaked havoc tomorrow was thwarted by the U.S. Constitution today. Ban Conversion Therapy Kentucky Executive Director Rebecca Blankenship and Government Affairs Director Michael Fraser said in a joint statement on Wednesday. As we have said many times, and as the ACLU proved with their suit, Bans of sex reassignment surgeries for minors are perfectly appropriate and uncontested by every pro-LGBT organization in this commonwealth. But puberty blockers and hormone therapy save lives. This will be a breath of air for trans youth, for admissions to inpatient psychiatric care facilities dramatically spiked after the 2023 legislative session, they said. Attorney General Daniel Cameron 
a Republican running for governor against Bashir, called Wednesday's ruling a misguided decision by a federal judge that tramples the right of the General Assembly to make public policy for the Commonwealth. Cameron, whose office intervened in the lawsuit, added, There's nothing affirming about this dangerous approach to mental health, and my office will continue to do everything in our power to defend this law passed by our elected representatives. Meanwhile, Mason Chernovsky, a 25-year-old trans man who protested against SB 150 during the legislative session, said he was relieved and inspired by the news. Access to gender-affirming care is life-saving, and I know many kids and families who are grateful that the judge granted the injunction, he said. Emma Curtis, a trans woman who was a prominent pro-trans rights protester during the session and is running for a statehouse seat in Lexington, said, With an injunction preventing SB 150's most damaging provisions, bans on puberty blockers and hormone therapy, from going into effect, trans youth today found a measure of vindication in the courts. As we have long proclaimed, trans rights are human rights, she said. With all my heart, I will continue working to ensure trans youth see resilience, joy, and representation that makes their lives more hopeful. Similar bans on gender-affirming health care across the country have been subject to legal scrutiny and subsequent restrictions in recent weeks. Shortly after Wednesday's injunction in Kentucky, a federal judge temporarily halted a similar law in Tennessee. Judges also stopped a similar law in Indiana earlier in June, as well as a 2021 Arkansas law blocking gender-affirming medical treatments for minors and a set of Florida rules restricting Medicaid coverage for similar types of health care. Joe Sanka contributed reporting. Reach Olivia Krauth at okrauth at courierjournal.com and on Twitter at at Olivia Krauth. The next article is entitled, UPS Union Declares Strike is Imminent. Teamsters Began Talks with Company in April. Article by Olivia Evans of Louisville Courier Journal and USA Today Network. Thursday, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the union that represents more than 340,000 UPS workers, declared a nationwide strike is imminent after walking away from the bargaining table and demanding UPS exchange its last, best, and final offer by Friday. The current contract expires July 31st at midnight. According to the Teamsters website, most strikes occur only after the expiration of a contract, not during the contract term. However, strikes can be called at any time if extremely unsafe working conditions occur, or if the company has participated in an unfair labor practice. But these types of non-economic stripes are very rare. One example of an unfair labor practice is refusing to bargain in good faith with a duly elected union. It is unclear if the Teamsters will strike prior to the expiration of the contract. Louisville is home to UPS Worldport the largest sorting and logistics facility in America and home to UPS Airlines headquarters. It could see more than 10,000 workers strike if UPS and the Teamsters do not agree on a contract. The last time UPS had a strike was 1997. During that strike, the Independent Pilots Association, 
the union representing UPS pilots, supported the strike and did not cross the picket line. It's likely the pilots would do the same again if there is a strike. If we were forced to go on strike because UPS didn't want to give these members what they deserve, it would cripple the company. This hub is crucial to UPS and the flow of their business, Avril Thompson, the president of Teamsters Local 89, said Wednesday. The Teamsters and UPS have been negotiating a new labor contract since April. Earlier this month, the Teamsters passed a strike authorization vote. Wednesday, rank-and-file workers at UPS Worldport hosted a practice picket days after the International Brotherhood of Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien called for them nationwide after claiming UPS presented an appalling economic counterproposal during national negotiations. Last week, we provided our initial economic proposal, said Laura Holmberg, a spokesperson at UPS. This week, we followed with a significantly amended proposal to address key demands from the Teamsters. As of June 19th, the Teamsters and UPS have reached tentative consensus on 55 non-economic issues. Last week, the company began negotiating economic pieces of the national contract. The Teamsters were unpleased with what UPS counterposed. Reaching consensus requires time and serious, detailed discussion, but it also requires give and take from both sides, Holmberg said. We remain at the table ready to negotiate. According to Teamsters Local 89, the local union representing more than 10,000 UPS employees at Worldport and the Louisville Centennial Hub, the demands from the union include no more excessive overtime, no more two-tier pay, higher part-time pay, more full-time jobs, job security for feeders and package drivers, and video camera and harassment protection. While UPS is maintaining a confident public appearance that a strike will not happen and a new contract will be negotiated before expiration, the Teamsters do not indicate the same confidence. The largest single-employer strike in American history now appears inevitable, O'Brien said in a tweet. Contact reporter Olivia Evans at oevans at courier-journal.com. The next article is entitled, Supreme Court. Race Can't Be a Factor in College Admissions, article by Mark Sherman of Associated Press. The Supreme Court on Thursday struck down affirmative action in college admissions, declaring race cannot be a factor and forcing institutions of higher education to look for new ways to achieve diverse student bodies. The court's conservative majority overturned admissions plans at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, the nation's oldest private and public colleges, respectively. Chief Justice John Roberts said that for too long universities have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Justice Clarence Thomas, the nation's second black justice, who had long called for an end to affirmative action, wrote separately that the decision sees the university's admissions policies for what they are, rudderless, race-based preferences designed to ensure a particular racial mix in their entering classes. 
Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in dissent that the decision rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. Echoing her dissent, President Joe Biden said he strongly, strongly disagrees with the court's ruling. He urged colleges not to let the ruling be the last word. They should not abandon their commitment to ensure student bodies of diverse backgrounds and experience that reflect all of America, Biden said from the White House. He said colleges should evaluate adversity overcome by candidates. Both Thomas and Sotomayor, the two justices who have acknowledged affirmative action, played a role in their admissions to college and law school, took the unusual step of reading a summary of their opinions aloud in the courtroom. In a separate dissent, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the court's first black female justice, called the decision truly a tragedy for us all. Jackson, who sat out the Harvard case because she had been a member of an advisory governing board, wrote, With let-them-eat-cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. The vote was 6-3 to three in the North Carolina case and 6-2 to two in the Harvard case. Justice Alina Kagan was the other dissenter. Two former presidents offered starkly different takes on the high court ruling. Former President Donald Trump, the current GOP presidential frontrunner, wrote on his social media network that the decision marked a great day for America. People with extraordinary ability and everything else necessary for success, including future greatness for our country, are finally being rewarded. Former President Barack Obama said in a statement that affirmative action allowed generations of students like Michelle and me to prove we belonged. Now it's up to all of us to give young people the opportunities they deserve and help students everywhere benefit from new perspectives. The Supreme Court had twice upheld race-conscious college admissions programs in the past 20 years, including as recently as 2016. But that was before the three appointees of former President Donald Trump joined the court. At arguments in late October, all six conservative justices expressed doubts about the practice, which had been upheld under Supreme Court decisions reaching back to 1978. Lower courts also had upheld the programs at both UNC and Harvard, rejecting claims that the schools discriminated against white and Asian American applicants. The college admissions disputes are among several high-profile cases focused on race in America and were weighed by the conservative-dominated but most diverse court ever. Among the nine justices are four women, two black people, and a Latina. The justices earlier in June decided a voting rights case in favor of black voters in Alabama and rejected a race-based challenge to a Native American child protection law. The affirmative action cases were brought by conservative activist Edward Bloom, who also was behind an earlier affirmative action challenge against the University of Texas, as well as the case that led the court in 2013 to end use of a key provision of the landmark Voting Rights Act. Bloom formed Students for Fair Admissions, which filed the lawsuits against both schools in 2014. 
The group argued that the Constitution forbids the use of race in college admissions and called for overturning earlier Supreme Court decisions that said otherwise. Roberts' opinion effectively did so, both Thomas and the dissenters wrote. The only institutions of higher education explicitly left out of the ruling are the nation's military academies, Roberts wrote, suggesting that national security interests could affect the legal analysis. Bloom's group had contended that colleges and universities can use other race-neutral ways to assemble a diverse student body, including by focusing on socioeconomic status and eliminating the preference for children of alumni and major donors. The schools said that they used race in a limited way, but that eliminating it as a factor altogether would make it much harder to achieve a student body that looks like America. At the eight Ivy League universities, the number of non-white students increased by 55 percent from 2010 to 2021, according to federal data. That group, which includes Native American, Asian, Black, Hispanic, Pacific Islander, and biracial students, accounted for 35 percent of students on those campuses in 2021, up from 27 percent in 2010. The end of affirmative action in higher education in California, Michigan, Washington State, and elsewhere led to a steep drop in minority enrollment in the state's leading public universities. They are among nine states that already prohibit any consideration of race in admissions to their public colleges and universities. The others are Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Nebraska, New Hampshire, and Oklahoma. In 2020, California voters easily rejected a ballot measure to bring back affirmative action. A poll last month by the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research showed 63% of U.S. adults say the court should allow colleges to consider race as part of the admissions process, yet few believe students' race should ultimately play a major role in decisions. A Pew Research Center survey released last week found that half of Americans disapprove of considerations of applicants' race, while a third approve. The Chief Justice Ann Jackson received their undergraduate and law degrees from Harvard. Two other justices, Kagan and Neil Gorsuch, went to law school there, and Kagan was the first woman to serve as the law school's dean. The next article is entitled, New Mexico Lawmakers Don't Agree on Proposal for Rio Grande. Article by Susan Montoya Bryan of Associated Press. Some New Mexico lawmakers are warning that leaving farmland unplanted along one of North America's longest rivers won't be a long-term answer to ensuring Texas gets its share of the Rio Grande under a pending settlement that would end a years-long fight over the river's management. Members of the powerful Legislative Finance Committee met Tuesday in Las Cruces, not far from the Texas state line. On the agenda were briefings from top water managers about the history of the dispute and the creation of a task force that will be charged with developing a plan for implementing the proposed agreement. The work ahead in the Lower Rio Grande is significant, and we know that, and we see that, and we're prepared to take it on. We have a plan, said Hannah Risley-White, Interim Director of the Interstate Stream Commission. 
That plan calls for reducing use through a combination of efforts that range from paying farmers not to pump groundwater to leasing surface water, following farmland, and making infrastructure improvements. The proposed settlement reached last fall by New Mexico, Texas, and Colorado still needs the approval of a judge who has been overseeing the case and, ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court. State Senator Joseph Cervantes, a Democrat from Las Cruces, argued that the settlement was far from a done deal, while other lawmakers said the burden of meeting water delivery obligations should not fall just to farmers in southern New Mexico. The next article is entitled, Connecticut Lawmaker Attacked After Attending Muslim Prayer Service. A Connecticut state lawmaker was attacked as she left a Muslim prayer service, and a fellow worshiper held the man until police arrived, authorities said. Representative Myram Khan was with her sister and her children Wednesday morning outside the XL Center, an arena in downtown Hartford. They were among about 4,000 people who attended the service, marking Eid al-Adha, the end of the Hajj, the annual pilgrimage by Muslims to Mecca. Next article is entitled, Three Charged in Insider Trading Case Related to Trump Media Company. Three men were arrested Thursday and charged with illegally making more than $22 million by insider trading before the public announcement that a special purpose acquisition corporation was going to take a media company owned by former President Donald Trump public. This next article is a correction from an earlier story in the Courier-Journal. A June 25th story about a 2023 James Beard Foundation Award winner gave incorrect information about the number of winners from Kentucky. There are two. Jim Embry, founder and director of the Sustainable Communities Network, a member of Slow Food USA, and a board member of the Ujamaa Cooperative Farming Alliance, and Valerie Horn, executive director at Cowan Community Action Group, founding partner and board chair of Community Agricultural Nutritional Enterprises and board chair of the City of Whitesburg Farmers Market. Now it's time for the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location. If you'd like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390 and we'll be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I'll repeat that number at the end of the listings. Larry Ray Barnett, 66, from Beaver Dam. Robert Emmett Carroll, Jr., 77, from Louisville. Francis Chester Teeny Clark, Jr., 72, from New Haven. Paulette Collier, 80, from Jeffersonville, Indiana. Wanda May White Dixon, 84, from Cave City. Susie May Dobbins, 85, from Louisville. Timothy Joseph Ekin, 73, from Louisville. Martha Elmore, 84, from Litchfield. Robert Ewing, 72, from New Albany. Betty Fields, 86, from Louisville. Ivory Finn, 47, from Litchfield. Dorothy Jean Gibson, 92, from Corridon. George Giles, 63, from Louisville. 
Josephine Goodlett, 78, from Lawrenceburg. Donald R. Hewitt, 82, from Louisville. Sarah Holder, 30, from Louisville. James Derek Homer, I'm sorry, Horner, 30, from Salem. Yvette Marie Jackson, 58, from Louisville. Rita Ann Kozak, 94, from Campbellsville. Debbie J. Martin, 67, from Danville. James Ricky Matthews, 74, from Munfordville. Edward McQuilling, 61, from Louisville. Barbara A. Missy, 80, from Floyd's Knobs. Earl Newman, 80, from Ebenezer. Howard Lynn Onan, 69, from Pleasureville. Kathy Sue Ogden, 60, from Shelbyville. Thomas William Overberg, Sr., 95, from Louisville. Chad Pence, 46, from Litchfield. James Rice, 84, from Louisville. Carol Ross, 72, from Louisville. Wilma Stepp, 77, from Jeffersonville. Alberta B. Thornton, 103, from Louisville. Janice Ann Varble, 76, from Clarksville. Mark Weichel, 55, from Pikeville. Jamie Waltrip, 55, from Calhoun. James White, 52, from Corridon, Indiana. If you'd like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire item to you. From the Metro section, our first article is entitled, Famed Oldham County Son Was Racist. Griffith, a talented director, mired in backward views. Article by Joseph Girth from Louisville Courier-Journal and USA Today Network. What do you do when your most famous resident is the greatest white supremacist filmmaker this side of Lenny Reifenstahl? That's kind of the dilemma that Oldham County faces. What the county has decided to do is celebrate the filmmaking abilities of D.W. Griffith while at the same time acknowledge the difficult part of him, that he was a supporter of the Ku Klux Klan and held beliefs that are flat-out wrong. History is history. You look at what happened. You have proof and you have records, said Nancy Thice, the executive director of the Oldham County History Center and an expert on Griffith. Griffith's greatest film was undoubtedly The Birth of a Nation, his three-hour silent classic that was released in 1915 and portrayed the Klan as a heroic bunch that protected white women from lecherous black men and saved Southern society from a complete takeover by African Americans following the American Civil War. At the same time Griffith was glorifying the KKK for the unthinkable things his members did, He was also pioneering things that would one day become not just commonplace, but critical components of modern-day filmmaking, including the close-up shot, the use of stuntmen, the fade-out, and the use of hundreds of extras in such a way that it looked like there were thousands. Griffith has always intrigued me, at least since the early 1990s, when I covered Oldham County for the Courier-Journal's Old Neighborhoods section. 
I've always been drawn to people who aren't all good and aren't all bad, who have some admirable traits, but other traits that are simply reprehensible. That is Griffith. Brilliant, but racist. Film historian Ed Rample wrote in the Washington Post on the 100th anniversary of the birth of a nation eight years ago, it is among the most despicable propaganda pictures of all time. He's hardly the first person to suggest that sort of thing. In fact, the criticism of Griffith isn't some newfound wokeness. The film was viewed alternately as brilliant, racist, trash since it was released in 1915. The NAACP protested at its opening at the Liberty Theater in New York in 1915. Over the next decade, numerous cities banned the showing of the movie or ordered some of the most racist scenes edited out. By the time Griffith applied for a permit to re-release the film in New York in 1921, one out of every 15 people in the United States had seen the movie, and it had earned more than $18 million at the box office. The following year, as the New York Film Commission considered whether to revoke the film's permit, one of the commission members wrote that the movie was an unmistakable attack on the colored race. In recommending the permit be rescinded, Joseph Levinson wrote, As an incitement to crime, the picture is deliberate, well-conceived, admirably executed propaganda to inflame the whole gamut of passions of whites against the Negroes, let me tell you, if you're too racist for 1922, well, then you're awfully damn racist. The movie uses racist tropes throughout, whether it's black members of the South Carolina legislature sitting barefoot and eating fried chicken on the legislative floor, or a black man chasing a young white woman who, rather than being defiled by an African American, leaps off a cliff to her death. The movie shows black soldiers abusing white citizens, and it shows members of the KKK writing to the aid of the poor, helpless white people. At least, they were poor, helpless white people from Griffith's Warp perspective. It's generally thought that the movie played a key role in the resurgence of the Klan in that era. The Indiana Klan, for instance, was formed in 1915, the same year the movie was released, and by 1925, all but two counties had chapters of the Klan, and more than half the members of the Indiana legislature and Governor Ed Jackson were all members. Back home, Griffith was revered. Thice said that when he was in LaGrange, he would walk the streets with candy in his pockets to give children. Mothers would dress up their daughters and curl their hair just in case they ran into him, hopeful that the girl would be the next Lillian Gish. When a new DVD collection of Griffith's work came out two decades ago, a writer with Slate opined that Griffith maybe wasn't a racist, in part because one of Griffith's movies involved a love story between a white woman and a Chinese man because he didn't have a coherent political thought in his head and it only made a movie that reflected the author's beliefs. When I mentioned that to Thais, she got kind of a pained look on her face. I think D.W. Griffith knew what he was doing, she said. In an interview with the Louisville Herald newspaper in 1922, Griffith said, I am one of those who think that the Northern victory was not a success. I still believe in states' rights. I am an unreconstructed Southerner. In an interview with famed director Walter Houston in 1930, Griffith talked about his upbringing and how it impacted the movie. 
when you've heard your father, who was a Confederate officer, talking about fighting day after day, night after night, and having nothing to eat but parched corn, about your mother staying up night after night sewing robes for the Klan, he told Houston. The Klan at that time was needed. People have for years struggled with Griffith's legacy. In 1945, when a University of Louisville professor recommended the school give Griffith an honorary doctorate degree, President E.W. Jackson wrote of his concerns. The impression I get is that he stumbled upon many of the techniques that he first evolved and that he was in no sense an outstanding person. They gave him the honorary degree anyway. In 1953, five years after Griffith's death, the Directors Guild of America named its Lifetime Achievement Award after Griffith. In 1999, it stripped his name from it, saying, The time is right to create a new ultimate honor for film directors that better reflects the sensibilities of our society at this time in our history. The following year, the organization gave the award to Steven Spielberg, who, being Jewish, would have been a target of the KKK that Griffith so dearly loved. In 1998, when the American Film Institute released its list of the 100 great marker movies of all time, it included The Birth of a Nation, but when it updated the list 10 years later, it had removed that movie and replaced it with another Griffith work, Intolerance. There's a movement in East Los Angeles now to change the name of the Griffith Steam Magnet Middle School, a school with 100% minority enrollment named after the racist director. Back in Oldham County, there's no attempt to purge Griffith's name, but there's no attempt to whitewash his legacy either. There's a sign identifying the LaGrange home Griffith built for his mother and where he lived for three years in the 1930s. And there's a state historical outside the Mount Tabor Church Cemetery where he's buried that talks about his accomplishments and even mentions his racist masterpiece. At the Oldham County Historical Center, a continuous loop of Griffith's movies plays in a small theater. But in a nearby display, there's a copy of the playbill people received when they attended the movie, but there's also a copy of The Klansman, the racist book upon which The Birth of a Nation is based. The Historical Center's website mentions the fact that the Directors Guild of America removed Griffith's name from its Lifetime Achievement Award and the effort in California to strip his name from the school. Thice points out that Griffith wasn't all bad. His movies almost always had a strong female character, and he took on issues like abuse and drug addiction at a time when other directors were largely focused on short comedies. We try to tell his story. We don't try to make it better or worse, she said. Joseph Girth can be reached at 502-582-4702 or by email at jgirth at couriergjournal.com. The next article is entitled, Renewed and Repurposed. Meet Eight Louisville Churches That Have Been Converted for New Services. Article by Olivia Evans of Louisville Courier-Journal and USA Today Network. As congregations shrink in Louisville and across the country, more churches are putting their buildings up for sale. Today, 47% of all U.S. adults self-identify as belonging to a church, compared with 55% just eight years ago, 
the need for many of these churches has decreased. Within the last decade, the supply of available church properties has increased, primarily after the recession as congregations have shrunk due to age and a decrease in membership, said Jason Ferris, the owner of Bell Ferris, a residential and commercial real estate appraisal company in Louisville. By 2015, Ferris had noticed more people coming to him to appraise church buildings as the owners looked to repurpose these churches into new businesses. Now, all of a sudden, you have a demand for these properties because you can repurpose these old churches into a lot of different things, Ferris said. You can make them apartments. You can make them restaurants. You can make them into offices. Some people even bought these churches and turned them into single-family home. Some of these churches are on the National Register of Historic Places. Savannah Dar, the Historic Preservation Officer for Louisville Metro, said historic churches are some of the most common buildings undergoing adaptive reuse. They are great candidates for reuse because they're typically pretty centrally located, whether in a city or in a neighborhood. They're pretty iconic in their design, and they're well-known, and people feel the loss of them if they're demolished rather than reused, Dar said. The reuse of historic church buildings also provides new experiences for people. I think there are a lot of buildings like churches that people want to visit, they want to experience, they want to see an adaptive reuse to experience them in a different way that you may have never dared to do so before, Dar said. Some of the projects qualify for historic rehabilitation tax credits, which provide financial incentives and support to rehabilitate these historic properties into a modern use. Ferris and Dar see the repurposing of these churches as an overall positive for the city noting that a building in use is always better than an abandoned building. If people keep coming to that place, then they need somewhere to stay. They need somewhere to eat. They need somewhere to park their car, Ferris said. There's a domino effect, a positive effect on the market when you have an attraction-type property like that. Here's a list of eight churches that have been repurposed into businesses. Third Turn Brewing at 10408 Waterson Trail was originally Jefferson Town Christian Church. Located in the historic Gaslight Square in Jefferson Town, Third Turn Brewing was the first brewery located outside of Interstate 264, said owner Greg Hayden. The brewery, which is in a community church that dates back to 1878, was intended to give the J-Town neighborhood a place to share drinks and conversation in a comfortable and laid-back atmosphere, Hayden said. For Hayden, a large part of the appeal in repurposing the church was its unique architecture and walkability from downtown J-Town. What wasn't simple was the renovation, Hayden said. Believe me when I tell you no one had in mind a brewery when this place was built. Much of the original architecture was kept intact, and Hayden said the other original element the brewery boasts is a haunting. We're often asked if it is haunted, Hayden said. The answer from some of those that detect such things is absolutely. The next reuse is Clayton and Croom at 216 South Shelby Street. Originally, it was the church of Shelby Street Methodist Episcopal Clayton and Croom, a high-end leather goods company, opened its doors in 2019. 
The shop features all of Clayton & Croon's handcrafted goods, including leather wallets, belts, and bags, as well as limited-run, special-release products. Steve Weiser, a retired Louisville architect and local historian, said the property is one of three early churches in the Phoenix Hill area. The church building dates to 1845 and showcases large arched windows and eyebrow hood molds. The next reuse is Focal Point Productions at 1432 Highland Avenue. Its original church name was Trinity Lutheran in 1989. Doug Jefferson started Focal Point Productions, a full-service video production company that produces corporate and commercial material for small companies to Fortune 500 companies. The church, which has Gothic Revival-style architecture with large windows, a big tower, and stone surroundings, is now a work-live space for Jefferson. He is converting roughly 3,000 square feet into his living space, while an additional 3,500 square feet serves as his production workspace. I was actually looking for a house in this area when I came across this property, Jefferson said. I quickly realized I could use this space as both a home and a business. The production space boasts a full shooting studio with light grid, three edit suites, sound room, conference room, offices, kitchen, and dressing room. The living space will feature two bedrooms, both with ensuite bathrooms. The next church reuse is Heaven's Door at 600 East Market Street. Original church name, Refuge of Kentucky Church. This fall, one more adaptive reuse church will open to the public. Heaven's Door, a spirits company co-founded by singing-songwriting legend Bob Dylan, plans to bring a restaurant, whiskey bar, and live music venue to New Lou, all housed within the former church. The connected gymnasium building will be converted into a restaurant and whiskey bar with a goal to offer one of the largest American whiskey selections in the country. We are excited to take an innovative approach to the way consumers interact with the brand and put a new spin on a piece of Louisville history, said Mark Wishala, CEO and co-founder of Heaven's Door Spirits. Bushala was originally drawn to the church for its architecture and towering red brick exterior. While visiting the space, I envisioned how the brand could breathe new life into the space and really make it our own, Bushala said. The next reuse is of Holy Grail at 1034 Bardstown Road. Original church name, the Highland Chapel. Thirteen years ago, Lori Beck and her partner, Tyler Trotter, turned their childhood love of the historic church into Holy Grail, a place of worship for all beer lovers. There is a reverence and beauty to it, which has shaped our business in every way, Beck said. Transforming a small community church, which used to serve the suburbs of the Highland areas, into a bar and food venue wasn't without challenges. There is nothing ideal about using our building for a restaurant bar, aside from the aesthetics, Beck said. Because of its age and size, we are incredibly limited and have had to do a ton of extra work to make it feasible. Nonetheless, we wouldn't have it any other way. The next church reuse is now Maven at 806 Apartments at 806 East Chestnut Street. Original church name, Ursuline Convent and Chapel in 
In November, Maven at 806 opened its arched doorways to new tenants. The church building had been vacant since the early 80s, according to Josh Lindley, Senior Vice President of Acquisitions at Haven Residential, and now offers a high-end living experience in the Phoenix Hill and Nulu neighborhoods. The intrigue was the opportunity to provide a unique living experience for our residents, Lindley said. Additionally, it's rewarding to add beauty and value to a historic and incredibly unique neighborhood. The nearly 200-year-old building was renovated in phases, including the 39 original units, an addition of 14 units, courtyard enhancements, rebuilding the 150-foot steeple, and other modern facility additions. It was important to us to maintain the historic integrity of this property, Lindley said in November press release. The next church reuse is now Noche Mexican Barbecue, at 1838 Bardstown Road. Original church name, Calvary Lutheran Church. In 2019, the trademark red doors on Noche Mexican Barbecue reopened to the public. The church no longer serves prayer and communion, but instead, guests can grab a table and enjoy burritos, nachos, tacos, and other Mexican-inspired cuisine. Owner Aaron Diaz was inspired by the Latin holiday Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, which celebrates the deceased. In Latin America, the celebration always starts in church mass and is brought to the cemeteries, so it was a fun way to bring that into our Louisville restaurant, Diaz said. Diaz and general manager Jake Snyder were partially drawn to the church for the restaurant concept due to its prime location in the heart of the highlands. Much of the church still remains original craftsmanship, including the ceiling, beams, pipe organ on display, and stained glass windows. We often get visits from people in the community that got married in the church, or people who spend their Sunday mornings for years in the church, or put on shows on the stage in the basement that now houses our office, Snyder said. The next church is now Sanctuary on Bardstown at 1838 Bardstown Road. Original church name, Calvary Lutheran Church. In 2018, a year before Noche Mexican Barbecue opened, the Sanctuary on Bardstown opened for residential living. We thought the church was a beautiful building that needed a little love, said Sonia Sani with NCS Properties. Its layout seemed ideal for a unique mix of residential and commercial space. The church features nine different floor plans across two floors. Sonny said each unit has its own character. Contact reporter Olivia Evans at oevans at courierjournal.com or on Twitter at at Olivia M. Evans underscore. The next article is entitled Pit Bull Coming to Louisville's Waterfront Park. Article by Ray Padilla of Louisville Courier Journal and USA Today Network. Dale, Mr. Worldwide, Mr. 305, Pitbull is coming to Louisville this August. Pitbull's performance is scheduled for August 26 at Waterfront Park in downtown, and tickets go on sale Friday, June 30. The gates will open at 5 p.m. with the show at 6.30 p.m., rain or shine, according to the tickets site. 
VIP tickets are $125 to $135 and include an exclusive viewing area, priority entry into the venue, and VIP lounge area with premium bars with specialty cocktails. The VIP area is standing room only. For more information on the show and how to get tickets, check here. Pitbull's tour also includes stops at Put-In Bay, Ohio, Anderson, South Carolina, Washington, D.C., Detroit, Orlando, Miami, Dallas, and Phoenix. Some of the shows will include performances with Enrique Iglesias and Ricky Martin. For full details on the tour stop and dates, visit Pitbull's site. Ray Padilla is the digital producer for the Courier-Journal. He can be reached at rapadilla at gannett.com or on Twitter at ray-padilla-. The next article is entitled, British Royals Public Spending Up 5% in 22. Article by Sylvia Wee of Associated Press. A change in monarchs, double-digit inflation, and ongoing costs to renovate Buckingham Palace contributed to a 5% increase in publicly funded spending by Britain's royals, according to accounts published Thursday. The palace's annual Sovereign Grant report showed that net spending was up $13 million in the past year. It also said King Charles III was behind a concerted effort by royal staff to turn down the heating at Buffingham Palace and other royal homes during the winter to cut emissions and costs. Temperatures were set at 66 degrees Fahrenheit and a few degrees lower when rooms were empty, officials said. The report also confirmed that Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan, have vacated their former home of Frogmore Cottage in Windsor, though officials declined to say who will be the next tenant. The annual report said the past year was a period of significant transition for the monarchy, with extra costs including the Platinum Jubilee of the late Queen Elizabeth II last summer, her funeral in September, and the accession of her heir, Charles. The year saw grief, change, and celebration, the like of which our nation has not witnessed for seven decades, said Michael Stevens, keeper of the Privy Purse. The Queen's funeral and events around the ceremony cost $2 million. Officials have not revealed the costs for Charles and Queen Camilla's extravagant coronation ceremony. That took place in May and was not covered in the report, which accounted for royal finances up to the end of March. The sovereign grant is public funding to support the official duties of the monarch and other costs, such as official travel, thousands of engagements, staff for working royals, and maintenance of occupied palaces. The amount of the grant, $109 million in the past year, unchanged from the year before, is based on a proportion of profits from the Crown Estate, a vast collection of land and property across the UK. The Crown Estate is run independently and has assets worth billions of pounds, including some of London's most expensive real estate. Aside from the sovereign grant, Charles and his son Prince William, the Prince of Wales, also receive private incomes from royal estates known as the Duchies of Lancaster and Cornwall. The next article is entitled, Bad Weather Eases, But Many Travel Plans Dashed, article by David Koenig of Associated Press. 
Backups were easing at U.S. airports thanks to a break in the weather, yet there were still hundreds of delays and cancellations for travelers early Thursday in what is expected to be the peak day for holiday travel, and pockets of dicey weather threatened to scramble air traffic this weekend. More than 1,000 U.S. flights had been delayed and nearly 400 canceled by 9.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, according to FlightAware. Scattered showers and thunderstorms were expected in the northeast later Thursday and Friday, and storms were expected further south along the east coast through Saturday. The west could get hit with similar unstable weather systems for the next several days. Thousands of people have had holiday plans thrown in the air after a wave of storms raked the northeast over the past few days, and frustrations are running high. United Airlines, which operates a hub out of Newark, New Jersey, canceled the most flights among U.S. airlines for a fifth day as of Wednesday. We're beginning to see improvement across our operation, United said late Wednesday. As our operation improves in the days ahead, we will be on track to restore our operation for the holiday weekend. The worst disruptions early Thursday, as had been the case for the past two days, were on the East Coast. The Federal Aviation Administration temporarily held up Boston-bound flights on Wednesday. It stopped flights to all three major airports in New York City area and two near Washington, D.C. at times on Tuesday. Huge crowds, bad weather, inability of some airline crews to reach their scheduling offices, even a Delta jet that made a belly landing in Charlotte, North Carolina, all contributed to the mess. The FAA was expecting Thursday to be the heaviest travel day over the July 4th holiday weekend with more than 52,500 total flights. Unlike past disruptions that have been caused or worsened by internal airline systems, delays this week have been caused almost entirely by bad weather. Yet technology may resurface as a source of disruption this weekend. Some airline planes may be unable to fly in bad weather starting this weekend because of possible interference with 5G wireless service. Last week, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg issued a new warning to airlines telling them that planes that aren't outfitted with new radio altimeters, devices that measure the height of a plane above the ground, won't be allowed to operate in limited visibility starting this Saturday because of potential interference from new 5G wireless service. American, United, Southwest, Alaska, and Frontier say all of their planes have been retrofitted, but Delta Airlines still has about 190 planes waiting to be updated because its supplier doesn't have enough altimeters. To limit disruptions, Delta said it will schedule those planes to avoid landing where the weather might be bad. Smaller airlines that operate regional flights could also be affected by the radio interference issue. This concludes selections from the Louisville Courier-Journal for Friday, June 30th, 2023. Your reader has been Greg Davis. We invite you to stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. And from everyone here at Radio I, thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.